0: It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Welcome everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored. Liz Chus, Mysha Aaron, Ben Miriam, Dvira, Lehatzliach, Beruchnius, Ubegashmius. We, uh, last couple episodes, a lot of feedback on the Rev Aaron Cutler episode. Maybe we'll get to some letters. No, not this time, next time. And just a recent episode I had on the Emancipation, the French Revolution, the Emancipation of the 19th century. And it was, you know, a little bit of a different kind of episode. I got a nice, nice feedback from some listeners. I would love it if, if um, I guess this is a request, um, if if uh, you could give me more feedback on not just this specific one, but this type of episode. You know, we have the more general ones are about, uh, you know, rabbis, personalities, micro history, micro Jewish history. Um, we go into people's lives and stories, micro and lighter, and the one on emancipation was both more macro and a little uh, heavier, but less light, I guess we'll call it, and I wanted to know if that's something that is loved, hated, neutral, so if you can just uh, let me know, I'd uh, yeah, appreciate that. so I can know if if there's a desire, we could I could ha- happily do more episodes like that in the future. And if there is not, then I won't. Um tonight to we'll talk about it was the art site today in Shabbos of someone who's become really, really popular in the last last few years, the Bas Ayan or Vram Doiv, of Avruch. And he's become like the uh, Nurub Shaiel of Karastir. Last uh, four or five years, uh, I don't think anyone heard of him until a couple of years ago. But it's uh, Remyelch Biderman, the big Mashpia, a very famous personality, who very you know charismatic, uh, making history also by the way in a certain way. Um, but there's other factors. So he's Sir Biderman, and other people are into the Baisaiin, the Torah of the Baisaiin, and who he was and what he represented. So he's become quite famous. So we're going to talk about him and who he was. So if everyone's already talking about him and and uh, going up to Tzfas and everything, so we might as well at least know a little bit about him. He's buried in the old Tzfas uh, Jewish cemetery, where it's famous as the Arizal and and Rabbi Ezef Karo and other famous personalities. Who some are there, some aren't, and there's a lot of you know fake graves there. It's, all, it's a very exciting place. I love bringing groups there all the time. Um, and you know, have done some, some groups up to Tverian Spas, those are nice, nice historical trips, which is possible to do virtually also. But uh, one of the prominent graves uh, up there is the Basayan, he's in a cave actually, a little below the Arizal, it's a spelunking, in you know, a little cave exploration. Once we're going, uh, in a, kind of hard to get into, a little narrow entrance, and you're literally going into a cave in the cemetery, he's there together with a couple of other big Hasidic tzaddik, and Rabbi David ibschitz Eibschitz, who wrote the uh, great Hasidic tzaddik, and he wrote the Arve Nachal, but the non-Hasidim might know him because he wrote the, he was a big paisek also, he wrote the Levushi Srud on Shulchan Aruch, and there's another uh, another one in there, in that same cave, a student of the Maggit of or Bari Leib of But either way, the more famous one in there is the Basayin of Ram Doiv. And um, the Sefer is very popular. A lot of people um, own it. Some even study from it. But that—that that is definitely not my department. That you should go to Ramayla Chbiderman and other people who know how to give over the Tyra of his Sefer. So I'm just going to talk about who he was. He was in Ukraine during the third generation of the Hasidic movement, a student of the Talmud of the Rebbe Yitzchak and of other tzaddikim at the time, primarily, though, of the Chernobyl dynasty, the Maray the founder of the dynasty, Rebbe Nachum Nachum of Chernobyl, the Tversky Chernobyl dynasty, and then his son, Rebbe Mutl of Chernobyl, the Chernobyl or Magid, Um very close with them, maintained a very a safer Basayin, uh, he said he only wants to print it if uh, the Chernobyl Magad gives a uh, haskama. And the Basayin was actually a rabbi. He was a communal rabbi. He was a tremendous Talmud Chacham and paisik of Halacha. We have even chuvus of his in you know halachic responsa in, in halachic uh, areas. And he was the rabbi of Ovrich of this city in the Ukraine. Um, he was for, prior to that he was in Chmelnik. And, uh, that, but Ovrich was the one that gave him his name. His wife was from there. Um, and he later on was the rabbi of Zhitomir, which was a, quite a large city in Ukraine. So he was a very prestigious and well-known rabbi and important rabbi. Both of them, both of these towns, both Ovrich and later in Zhitomir had responsibility, rabbinical responsibility to towns nearby. So he was like a, a regional rabbi in Paisik. So he was, uh, very much known as, as that. And at the same time, he was also a Hasidic uh, tzaddik. He, um, he, uh, he, you know, he had a tish. He had, he accepted pidyoinus and kvitlach. He was a regular Hasidic with a court. The whole deal. And so he, was, he served really in both positions, which there were other rebbes who did that. Um, Avrich, uh, later, uh, was famous as hosting another prominent Hasidic tzaddik D- decades later, the son of the Tzemach Tzedek, or basically Schneerson, of, of Avrich. He had a Chernobyl-style Hasidic court, uh, much to the consternation of Lubavitch. Um, we discussed him and, and his brothers in the context of the passing of the Tzemach Tzedek in that episode about Kapust and Lubavitch, and you could check out that episode as well. But either way, the Hasidic movement in the Ukra- in Ukraine during the time of a average the main um, dynasties was was uh, later to become a few years, you know, in, into his uh, rabbinical career. Uh, um, uh, so it was Bistrov of Rijin, the Rijiner, and of course Chernobyl. Chernobyl was the original dynasty. Those are the two major ones, and they already had branches. And then there was this kind of like second tier. Tzadikim in Ukraine, and, and he fit into this category. He wasn't as famous, he didn't have as much influence, but he was already well known, more as a rabbi, but also as a Tzadikim. There's other ones like that at the same time, Ramesh Tzviya Savran was, uh, was there in Ukraine at the time. Then, of course there was senior Tzadikim living in the Ukraine at the time, the Apterov, he was in Mezhabizh, Ramesh Nachman of Reslev was around during the earlier years. So, but the the the, the, the birthplace of the Hasidic movement was was there this area, but the the center was already shifting west to Galicia and Poland. And what remained in Ukraine was the ones I mentioned: Rijin, Chernobyl, Apterov, Breslav, Savran, others. But it, that was that was you know it was already second stage to what was developing further west. And that's where he finds himself. That's just to give it a a little bit of uh, of context. So he's serving as a rebbe and a rabbi, and He would continue to be that way when he would move to Tzfas eventually. He would be both a Hasidic tzaddik and a rabbi of the community. And to give it further context, uh, just discuss uh, the two interactions with with, uh, other famous uh, historical personalities, two very different historical personalities that he closely interacted with, so to give it further flavor of when he lived and and what type of world he was in. So there is the... Famous Maskil, uh, Avram Ber Gottlieb, who's a, a fascinating story. And when, whenever we get to the Haskalah, we'll definitely discuss him. And he lived in Ukraine and his father-in-law as a young man, Avram Ber as a young man, he was, you know, he was still a religious uh, Jew at the time. And he was caught by his father-in-law. He was living at his house with Maskilic literature. And his father in law who was a chassid, went to, uh, to seek advice by the by of Avruch. And he, what should I do with my son-in-law? He said, "Send him to me." And the young gutluber had an, a full interaction with with the Basayin, and uh, and he rebuked him and told him off, and uh, and eventually this led to gutluber's divorce from this young lady and. And uh, and then you know the rest is history as far as Gottlober was concerned, he became a maskil. And uh in his later in his he's later a famous warrior against Hasidim, he did not like them. And he described in his memoirs his encounter and his debate with uh Ram of, of Average, not in a very complimentary way, but that's his perspective as as a maskil. Um and he blamed him for all kinds of things. Either way, that was when he was the rabbi in Jitomir. They're also the in the other side of the spectrum. The legendary Chabad Chassid of Hill of Parich, who was one of the most famous uh, Lubavitch Chassidim in history, he was a famous mashpia, and he composed a lot of the classics of of, of the of the uh, Chabad songs. He started out as a Chassid of Ramutl of Chernobyl, and he was also a very close student of the Basayin. He was a close Talmud of the Basayin in in Jitomir, and studied from him, and so he had that that interaction as well. So that's his rabbinical career when he's still in Europe. But he, uh, Rabbi Ram Doiv, makes a decision at some point in his life, in the early 1830s, that he's moving to the land of Israel. In his old age, um, You know, some sources bring it as 1830, it probably was a couple of years later, it was probably in 1833, and he he decided to pick himself up and move, which was very unique at the time, so why did he do it? So there were several reasons, actually. One was his love for Eretz Israel. His love for it, it comes across in his Sefer, the Basyan. He said that, that, that the land of Israel is the HaPnimus, the epicenter of Jewish life. He discusses it a lot. It's one of the primary themes in his Sefer and in his thought, which is one of the reasons that Ramayel Khbirman uh, talks about it, he makes a big deal about him, and leads thousands of people to. Uh, someone told me today in, in Shul, of course, in my Shul, someone uh, sponsored a Kiddush. In honor of the Bassayan's yard site, and I had to speak about him. I was honored to speak about him at the Kiddush. But, uh, so someone says to me afterwards, he said, you know, no, there's 3,000 people up with uh, Ramiel Khbirim in this Shabbos in Tzfas. In five to 10 years, you know, if you don't go up to Tzfas for the Basayin's yard site, you're like not Jewish. It's going to be, you know, that's where it's going to get to. Either way, so, so a lot of it was about his, you know, his description of his love for the land of Israel. He also, very very unique for the time, he goes at length in in certain places to describe his love for Lashon HaKadosh, for the holy tongue, which uh, is a similar language to modern Hebrew. And uh, pre pre the Zionist era, again, this is the 1830s, both of those loving the land of Israel and loving the holy language, Lashon HaKadosh, were two important traditional positions that were unique for a Hasidic leader at the time, but uh, definitely part of his legacy, and it was, you know, it wasn't even controversial in those days to 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 have to hold to maintain those positions. Um, so, reason number one is is because it's central to to um, um, again back, back to his lashon thing. He 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 wanted or he believed ideologically that that we should revive the use of lashon in the land of Israel. A very interesting uh, position. Either way, that was reason number one why he wanted to move. Reason number two is, unfortunately, and this is one of the tragedies of his life, he did not have any children. And he never did. And he thought that moving to Eretz Yisrael would help, would assist him have children. He said, Avraham Avinu, when he moved to the land of Israel, he ha- merited to have a child, so perhaps I will as well. He never did, unfortunately. It was uh, part of his tragedy. Um, and part of his mystique today, why people, you know, want to, you know, uh, go dive in there and, and connect to it and, and all kinds of things. So that was reason number two. Reason number three is even more interesting, is that he wanted to get away from the brewing and emerging disputes in the succession in the Chernobyl dynasty. He was very close with the Chernobyl dynasty. Ramatul of Chernobyl was getting elderly and sick, and he had a lot of sons. And uh, he sensed that it would gonna, there was going to be tension, and who was going to take over the leadership. He did not want to be involved. He want, didn't want to stay away from the dispute, and um, and uh, and eventually, Rymutl Chernobyl's uh, children all divided up the dynasty into into to, to, to Tolna and Rachemistrivk and Skver and Trisk and one branch stayed in Chernobyl and Harnastypele and several others. But uh, anticipating that tension and that dispute. He wanted to get away from it, so that and that seems actually to be the main primary reason why he wanted to move away. Though it's uh, you know not uh, not as exciting as the other reasons. It was definitely not messianic. Uh, we discussed the non-messianic aspect of the Vilna Gain's, uh Talmidim and their uh, aliyah to Israel in the uh, in the early 1800s in a different episode about the forgery of the Kol Hattar. And you could check out that episode also, which that generated I still get feedback from it, and people don't like it, but you know the truth sometimes is not so exciting so the uh, revram dive of Avruch's um uh moving to israel was also non messianic and oh, like the earlier Aliyah of the Hasidim and in the in the eighteenth century and the Talmidei hagra it was not it was non messianic it was nothing to do with that he with after the earthquake, he discussed the Mashiach coming, and he and he he talk, gave chizik to people and don't worry, this is the beginning of the Geula and it's going to come soon and, and and you know and we have to recover and it was a way to inspire people, but it does not seem from anywhere that it was the reason, the catalyst for his moving to the land of Israel in the first place. So he is the first major Hasidic leader to move to the land of Israel since 1777, when Rabbi Nachman of Etebsk and Rav moved. And that's a big significance. Why? Rome Kalisk passed away in 1810. The Hasidic community in Tzfas and Tveria was growing, and there's no leadership. There was no Rebbe who moved to Eretz Yisrael, and almost none even visited. Rabbi Nassim of Nemerov, actually, the Talmud of Reb Nachman, visited in the 1820s. Um, he was one of the only ones. So there's a real leadership crisis in the Hasidic community in Israel. Um, and the and, uh, and he comes and he fills that uh, leadership void and he comes with a group of Hasidim. He comes with at least, it seems tens. It seems like at least, you know, 40, 50 other people, quite a significant, uh, a move there for that time. And he uh, immediately becomes in charge of distributing the chaluka money. He's the head of the Koylel Volin, which is the Hasidic uh, community for the and Chernobyl. And he himself is personally financially independent. You know, He still received Pidyoinus from uh, Hasidim, but he himself owned real estate, apartments in Zhitomir. And he had someone manage them back in Ukraine and send him the rent money. So he supported himself and those close to him, and he never took a penny from the chaluka system. And I had an episode about the chaluka system, which you should check out, which is important to understand uh, this context. So there's a double uniqueness here: number one, he's a Hasidic leader; number two, he's part of the old yishuv, which sustained itself on the chaluka money, but he's financially independent, which is very, very important for being, you know, in a, in a position of leadership, and this uh, increases the people's belief in him and trust and integrity. And he works on rebuilding a community which already had lots of challenges, even before the major shakeups of the ensuing decade. Um, there's another fellow, Gershon Magolis, who was a more problematic individual who he had to share the leadership with. Um, but he, uh, he Rebevrom Doiv, has Tish, he receives Kvitlach, he's respected by all, even by the Prushim, the students of the Vilna Gain, who also lived in Swaz at the time. And this might come as a big surprise, and I hope it doesn't dis- disappoint any of the Litvaks among our listeners, but it seems that the head of the Prushan community, Rabbi Yisrael of Shklov, student of the Vilna Gain, author of the Pa'asa Shulchan, gave Rav Ram Doiv of Avrich a kvittel. Huh? Wow. And while he was there, Rav Ram Doiv also helped found the Ashkenazi Hever Kaddish of He develops uh, the community. Now there's some major events uh, um, that come over that decade, which he, you know, he planned to live out his golden years in quiet and study and lead his community quietly during his later years. He was already an old man, and instead, this the 1830s. There was probably not a single decade that had such major upheaval, especially the community of Sfas. And in, in, in the in the, that whole 200-year period, it was a major um, one crisis after another. The first one was in 1834, shortly after he arrives, the Syrian Peasant Revolt, but the the uh, Hebrew uh, term for to describe it sounds much better. It's the Mered HaFalachim, the Falachim, which is the, the Syrian peasants, their revolt. And um, that we'll get, I'll get that in a second. The second one was the Great Earthquake, the most famous one, the Great Earthquake of 1837, which basically destroyed the Jewish community to us. And the third one was the Druze, revolt of 1838. Now both of those revolts, understand the geopolitical context of the time, were essentially a revolt against the the uh, leader of the area at the time, who was a fellow by the name of Muhammad Ali, which I also went into in the episode on um, on the Damascus blood libel of 1840. I want to check out that episode as well. So Muhammad Ali, you know, the Ottoman Empire ruled the whole entire Asia Minor, Middle East, uh, Southern Europe, that whole North Africa, that whole part of the world. And they had regional leaders who sometimes uh, revolted against the power. So Muhammad Ali kind of uh, usurped the power from the Ottomans. And there was a whole long process of Muhammad Ali, who was from Egypt, Egyptian regional uh, leader, and he controlled for a time uh, Israel and, and and Lebanon, Jordan, and, and uh, today is Lebanon, Jordan, and, and Syria, that whole district, until the Ottomans pushed him out. Um, but under Muhammad Ali, so, you know, lots of people weren't excited about his new rule. So the first one was the Syrian peasant revolt was against Muhammad Ali, essentially against Muhammad Ali. And the Druze revolt wasn't directly, but it also was, you know, again, essentially the overall rule of Muhammad Ali. So it was a, a tenuous uh, situation. And the, of course, the... uh the, the Jews suffer. Uh, there's There's financial, you know, uh, you know, the economy goes better. And it's more than that. There's plunder. The houses get destroyed. People are homeless. Businesses are destroyed. A lot of people, their property is simply stolen. There's even, it's like pogroms. People are killed. And, and a, really a terrible situation, both of those revolts. And then the great earthquake completely destroys all the buildings, Loads of people uh, uh, die in the earthquake. The Jewish community is completely decimated. And, um, so we have Rabbi Ramdev Avruch the Bas Ayan's leadership during this crisis. Um, he, he, uh, on one hand, his, his Hasidic as a Tzaddik leadership. There's all kinds of stories about miracles that he, that he was able to perform. And during the earthquake, when he gathered, uh, the, the members of his, of his community in, in the shul during the earthquake and, and he had them go over to a certain corner of the shul and when the, when the shul collapsed during the earthquake, the, 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 uh, that corner didn't, didn't co- completely collapse and it didn't crush them and they all survived. Whoever was with them survived, which it probably something of the sort happened because uh, there's good documentation for it. In fact, if you go to that shul, the shul still exists, of course, in the old city of Tzfat Today there's a plaque a pretty ancient plaque up on the wall of the entrance of the shul that, that states that this shul, the miracle happened of Rav Ram Doiv, the Basayin, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and that's that's in the realm of his, as a Hasidic title. On the other hand, as a true leader, there's a lot of practical things he did. He first made a rallying cry, don't leave Tzfas, don't abandon the community, we're going to rebuild, there's a rehabilitation time, he has diplomacy with the local governing officials and he goes around and he knows how to talk to people and he's a, a true leader and his distri- distribution of funds, his honesty, and you know, he himself, like I said, was financially independent and um, it's interesting, uh, Montefiore, Moses Montefiore visited in 1839 and there's an assessment of Eliezer uh, Halevi, uh, for, for both from a previous visit and this visit twice actually, his secretaries, legendary, his famous secretary, Eliezer Halevi, who always accompanied uh, Montefiore on his travels, so, um, he writes how impressed he was with the leadership and, uh, the, the personality of, of, uh, of the Bassayan. It's also interesting in the diary of Judith Montefiore, Montefiore's wife, um, who was also, she writes about how this, you know, an amazing impression that, uh, that the Bassayan made on anyone who came into contact with him. So it's interesting that she writes that in her diary. As, well, by the way, the Montefiore's themselves also didn't have children. So, you know, they didn't, they visited his house, he, in fact, the Bassayan and his wife hosted the Montefiuris for breakfast once, they had a whole meal, a whole suda, a whole reception for him. Uh, interesting uh, tidbit there. So Montefiuris himself was very impressed, um, and, he, and, he, and he stated the fact, he said that it was as, as opposed to uh, the other Jewish communal leaders in Tzvast, who distributed the majority of the, the stimulus package that montefiori gave to the Yishuvs, they dissimulated the majority of the funds to Talmudic Hachamim. that was the philosophy of the old yeshivah but the basyan did not do so the basyan distributed based on how much damage each individual sustained as a result of the earthquake irrespective of their uh, talmudic scholarship background it was completely based on an economic assessment of how much damage they had they sustained and how much they needed um so the there was the month of years stayed for 10 days in fast during that uh Visit. There's all kinds of ceremonies. We have to devote at least one, maybe even more episodes to Montefiore and his visits to Israel and Eastern Europe. And, um, and continuing with his diplomacy and fundraising, the Basayan uh, corresponded with the Rizhiner, who was the most powerful Hasidic leader in Ukraine, to get help with the earthquake victims and with other uh, leaders back home. There's all kinds of letters from him that we still have. In his last year or two, uh, in, alive, the Basayan was the undisputed leader of the Ashkenazi community in Svas, even the Prushim. Um, Rabbi Solov Shklov had moved to Yerushalayim, and, uh, and, uh, you know, he, he distributed all the Chalukya money, both for the Prushim and for the Hasidim in the town. And he was the address for any communal or individual issue during his last couple of years. And unfortunately, in 1840, there was a cholera epidemic. So again, Another relevance to today is that uh, is that there was a cholera epidemic, and unfortunately he did not survive that uh, epidemic, and that's what his pass uh, that's what did him in. Uh, he passed away in 1840, childless, no dynasty that continued. He was replaced by his famous Talmud and also a Chernobyl chassid, Rabbi Shmuel Heller, who became the rabbi of Tzfas for decades. It was another story. So that's uh, about the Bas Ayin. This is the Gabriel Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at Yehudagabra.com for questions, comments, um, sources, tours, trips, virtual tours, lectures, sponsorships. And um, you can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.